0: Welcome to the first digital recording of the Suncoast Chapter meeting. This meeting was held August 3rd, 2006, and it's the first time that we are making it available digitally for listeners. Ian Koss is the founder of Inc. 19, which is a a large music magazine used to primarily be print. And Ian's team transitioned into the online format as the internet emerged, and he's going to be telling us about all the differences and the new techniques he and his team used when they moved into this new medium. As you heard, my name is Ian Koss. My day job is doing IT stuff at Florida Tech, mostly related to distance learning. But uh, these days, my hobby is maintaining ink 19com which is a music website. Uh, ink 19 started as a print magazine in 1991, 15 years ago. A little over 15 years ago, June 91. It's now online. It's been online for 10 years. You were a very early internet adopter. If you think about 1996 and, and the internet, you know you had Netscape. You had there was no Google. There was barely some Yahoo. <laughs> and I, I guess you know part of part of what I'm going to touch on in this pre- this presentation is some of the differences between writing in print and writing online. Uh, based on my experience and some of the things I've observed. I got a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Florida Tech back in 91. Uh, That's kind of my technological background. While I was at Florida Tech, I was one of the editors at The Crimson, which was a campus paper. I was also a DJ and worked in the music department at WFIT, which was a campus radio station. And after I graduated, I kind of didn't want it to stop. (laughs) <laughs> so I figured out a way to to keep that going. At the time, 1991, alternative music was becoming popular. You know, alternative was still the alternative to the mainstream and not the mainstream. At the time in the area, it, the, no one was writing about the music. You know, unless it was a sort of as a novelty novelty thing. So we there was there was obviously a, a market for it and. We, We had the resources and the know-how, myself and the the other people who started in 19. And uh, probably most important of all, we were very, very stupid. Because starting a magazine is uh, a lot of work, but it's nowhere near as much work as keeping a magazine going. What I tell people is you have all the time in the world to put out your first issue and only a month to put out your second one or a week, you know, depending on what schedule you set for yourself. But, you know, we were stupid and fortunately we were also obstinate, so we kind of hung in there to the point where we could keep it going. If you notice, most most people who start a magazine will last two or three issues. And Generally, if they get past that third, fourth issue, they're kind of... you have enough momentum to keep going. So we began planning Inc. 19 back in November of 1990. We published our first issue in June of 91. I think that first issue was about 5,000 copies. Uh, Originally, we had planned to distribute it in Brevard County only, over on the Space Coast, uh, with some dropped off in Orlando when we went to shows or, you know, just kind of a casual distribution over there. But it uh, it was adopted very quickly over there, and we started expanding into the area, and uh, grew the magazine to about 10,000 copies. Then in October of 93, we came into Tampa, West Florida, grew the magazine to 25,000 copies. In April of 94, we added Atlanta, up in Georgia, uh, grew it to 45,000. And then in March of 97, we we started a South Florida edition and grew the magazine to 60,000 copies. That's about where we peaked. Our last issue was December of 2000. And at the time, we were the second largest regional free music monthly. Uh, The first one was a publication called BAM out in California. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but, you know, it was interesting that, you know, the number one publication is, had combined markets of San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, and points in between, and then the second largest was Florida and Georgia. So, you know, not New York or Chicago or Seattle or any of those other places you'd think would have the number two spot. Some internet slash technological history of Inc. 19 because I was in the computer science program back in 91, I had access to the internet. You know, b- back then it was kind of a, a secret. You know, like uh, like the alchemists' magic mirror. Not everyone had it and you described it to people and it, it sounded like magic. I mean, it was magic. Um, there was no World Wide Web, but there were news groups and there was email. So I put out a request on some of the news groups asking for people who were interested in contributing to the magazine. And uh, we had some submissions via email for our first issue. Uh, We had, they came from all over the country, Uh, people, we had some people from New York, we had one person in Australia send us something. We began all digital production, we were, you know, laying things out on the desktop and printing to film in 94. We made email a requirement of all staff in '96. Just kind of, you know, at the at the time, people said we were suicidal, but it was just too much work. We lost some staff, you know, and we we kind of grandfathered some staff in because we really liked them, you know, and we were willing to type up their stuff ourselves if they put it in the post. But uh, yeah, all new staff really had to have email starting then. Uh, we premiered the website in early '97. In '98, we began using XML. Um, the reason we adopted XML is we we needed a way that we could mark up our stories so that they could have uh, so that we could have kind of two versions of a story in one document. You know, one version headed for print where space matters and you have to count every word, and another version headed for our, our website where it can be as long as you want it, um, you know, especially on something like an interview, you, you know, you, you'll talk to someone for 40 minutes and get about 10,000 words out of them. Uh, talk to someone like Henry Rollins for 40 minutes and you'll get a lot more than that. But you know, an, an interview in, in print is about 2,000 words. You know, if you really want to stretch it, you can maybe go up to four or 5,000, but we were just wasting a lot of good material. Ending up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So we decided to come up with a system where we could kind of be able to edit both editions at the same time and be able to single out which parts were headed for print and which parts were headed for online. And we did that with XML. It was uh, simple enough and easy enough to manage at the time. In 2000, in early 2000 we moved all our editorial department online. Um, all our stories were assigned and tracked and proofed and prepared and published via a content management system that we had and wrote ourselves. Um, even at, even then at the time our, our online publication schedule was monthly just because the print publication schedule was monthly and it was easy to manage it that way, you, you know, you, you, everything fit in a calendar. But in February of 2001, a couple of months after we stopped having the print edition, we moved to daily updates. Um, there really was no reason to keep things monthly, especially not online. And uh, we've been growing the website, we're uh, averaging between 10 and 15,000 daily visits, 10 and th- to 15,000 daily visitors. Uh, about half a million page views each month, and it just seems to keep growing from there. All right, so with that background out of the way, what are some of the differences between writing for print and writing for online? Well, you have differences in style and differences that have roots in technology. When it comes to differences in style, one thing to think about is that print, print media is very selective. You have a good grasp of your audience. Y- you kind of know how you're targeting your audience, where your where your publication is being distributed, what kind of demographic will find it interesting enough to spend their hard-earned cash to pick it up. Or um, we were a free magazine, so in their case, it was more of a I'm going to have to carry this all night, kind of sacrifice. But nonetheless, you you, you did have that uh, a filter. Um, where really only the people who were interested in what you had to say would be the ones reading it, uh, making the investment to have their magazine in their possession. Given that, you can target your writing at the specific needs and the knowledge level of your audience. You have a good idea of who they are, what, what they're interested in, what they're expecting to read. On the flip side, you have some physical constraints. You, know, you, you only have so much space for fitting your text and uh, you only have so many pictures you can run and uh, at a certain size. And sometimes those restrictions can make you artistic. You know, you find creative ways to get around them, but most of the time they're just frustrating. In contrast, online media is a free for all. Whatever you publish online can be read by anyone. You, You can't make any assumptions about who is going to end up reading your article. People will find it one way or another. Sometimes the link gets passed along via an email, but at other times they're just looking for that random piece of information and, and they come across your article. Also in contrast is that people have no investment in what they're reading on the screen. They can just click and be somewhere else. They don't feel any obligation to read it because they uh, Spent their money on purchasing it or because they went out of their yeah. way to pick it up and bring it home. And again, be, because of that unknown audience, you, you just have all sorts of levels of knowledge and, and interest going on. But again, in contrast, you can make things as long as you want or as short as you want, and you can have as many bad digital snapshots of your vacation as you want. There is an Interesting, uh, interesting effect going on with permanence and availability. I've, I've called it the paradox of the web, and that is, uh, you know, when when we first started publishing online, and we first started telling some people we don't have any room for you in the print edition, but we're going to put your piece online, uh, people would be would get mad. They'd be frustrated. They would feel like their article wasn't real. If they couldn't hold it in their hands but what ends up happening is that that article you hold in your hands lasts one month and then the new issue is out and you know if, unless you had some friend that kept his copies around or you happen to stumble across it tucked under your mattress or something you're never gonna see those those articles again uh, online however it's another story you know online once it's up there it's permanent it's it's available I I can go to my website and bring up stories from 1998 if I wanted to and it's interesting because we'll get we'll get feedback from people for things we wrote years ago you know sometimes it's someone who was at a show or who has special memory of, of an artist sometimes it's the artists themselves you know. Looking up that crazy band they they had in college, and you know they they come to find that someone wrote about it, and it's it's still over there. And I mean, it's interesting that if if we were exclusively print, none of this would be happening. You know, all ev- all we wrote every month, you know, the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words would just kind of disappear. The other thing is availability. That's that's interesting about the web that your distribution is global, and for the most part, it's free. It doesn't cost more to reach someone in Australia than it does to reach someone down the street. You know, and one of one of the biggest headaches for us when we were in print was distribution. You know, getting getting these magazines into the hands of the people who wanted to read them. When uh, The magazine is produced in one place and printed in another and then distributed throughout two states. So anyway, with all this in mind, what do you do when you are writing online? I guess the most valuable piece of advice I can give anyone is to get to the point. Because people have no investment in your whatever you wrote, they will click somewhere else as soon as they think it's not the right place. And usually that's at the end of the first sentence. So you need to either make your point or very quickly hook people in to what you want to say if you want them to read the entirety of what you wrote. After the first paragraph, the first three or four sentences, the reader should know the exact topic of the text and the exact level of knowledge that is required of them to understand what's going on. A lot of this is is kind of common sense, but it bears repeating. Use clear and precise writing. Uh, develop a unique voice. Being timely is crucial. Uh, another effect of, of the whole internet publishing phenomenon is that, you know, if, if it's if it's not today, it's yesterday's news. In print, you'd have much more. Of, you have a much more lenient uh, lifespan for for things because people expect know well there's a whole production cycle and it takes time for the magazine to get to my hands and then I have time to read about it uh, but online that's that's not true I mean everything has become a matter of you know days if not hours and you know by the time you know if, if you're a day late on, on a particular story all your friends are like oh yeah I read that yesterday <laughs> alright some technological differences uh, print media is static. That means it's great for layout. You know, you can put your images where you want them. You can choose the fonts you like. You you have control over your green so that it's a forest green and not a spring green. It's great for heterogeneous information delivery. If you have a lot of different things, you can. Put them together on your page and, and use design and layout to make sense of the information, even if it's a whole set, set of, you know, text and charts and images and diagrams. Once something is printed, that's it. You're done. It's printed. You know, maybe there will be a second edition in a year or a couple of years if, if there's demand for it. But really, when you're done, you're done. You don't have to worry about it. Now. Online media is kind of the opposite in in these ways. Uh, There's no guarantees on your presentation. Your page may look great on your screen, but, you know, look, look completely unintelligible on someone else's computer using their obscure browser. Pages already suffer from information overload. You can't fit all your charts and diagrams and such in a single page. Uh, especially not the way most sites are set up, where you have links taking you to all sorts of places and flashing banners and Google Ads. There's just so much already on there that you have to be very careful about how much information you're actually placing on a page, Um, which is not to say that you should leave things out, just that it requires a lot more careful planning to uh, achieve the same effect. And then finally, everything that's online can change. There's nothing stopping you from going back and correcting something. So, in truth, you're never done. Mm-hmm. You might. Y- we constantly get emails, and well, mostly emails. <laughs> no one, no one calls anymore. But just people correcting us on on someone's last name from a review from four years ago of a band <laughs> that was, you know, so obscure. Probably only their family and and us heard of it. Um, so yeah, you're never done. You, it's a it's, uh, ever-growing mass of documents that you have to maintain. Um, and people expect you to maintain them. All right, some ways of uh, taking advantage of online media. Uh, there's a term that you you'll, you'll probably have already heard and you'll be hearing more and more frequently, and that's the semantic web. Everyone heard of this, the semantic web? You know, which basically says uh, and the principles of the semantic web are, you know, let's stop designing the HTML code for pages as a code to display things the way we want them, and instead let's use the code to explain, you know, to structure the text that we're presenting. You know, we will use the first level headers, the biggest headers for the title of the page. We will use second level headers for the chapters and third level for sub-chapters and we will use things like paragraphs for paragraphs and block quotes for quotes and and so on and so forth. You know, the, the idea of the Semantic Web is that that you are giving information about the information on the page and not necessarily, you know, you're not focusing on making sure that your links are all the same pretty color of red and that your background is that pink crosshatch that was your favorite two months ago, but now it's horrible. Uh, One of the advantages of having semantic markup is that it provides additional information about your writing to search engines. most search engines do differentiate between something that's a first level header as being central to the topic of a page and further you know further down the line, the second, third, paragraph level text, that all gets indexed with less weight as to the topic of the page. And kind of a, a side effect of, of, of doing things this way is that it provides some generally accepted visual cues to the reader when When you make your first level headers the biggest and the second level headers the second biggest and so on, it helps people think of the structure of your article the way you intended it. Um, and they're not they're not distracted by things like uh, the color of your headers to imply you know a, a difference in level or using a different font or, you know, all these details that help with the design of the page but don't necessarily help convey the meaning of the page. And then uh, finally, there's one of the advantages of using semantic markup for your web pages is that it gives you better control over changes that you want to make in the future. Um, It's if in the future you decide that you want all your first level headers to be a different font because you have structured your data uniformly across your site, it becomes a much easier change to make. Another, another thing you can use to your advantage is metadata about your article. Uh, metadata is basically information about a page that is not visible to the user. Things like keywords, descriptions. Um, for example, your page title you know, what you see at the top there. In this case, nineteen Music Media Thought. You will see that text when you make a bookmark. You know, if you were to bookmark this page, that's what the bookmark would read by default. People use it to identify which window they're looking for. When, Mm -hmm. if you're like me, you'll have like eight browser windows open at a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it's difficult to find the one you're looking for if people haven't titled their pages appropriately. And the page title also plays a crucial role for search engines when they want to index whatever it is you're writing for, writing about. Um, they'll use that as one of the main uh, topics, keywords, for for ranking your page in searches. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, I haven't done any web design in a while, but is, is, are you saying that the um, search engines now will go and catalog everything in a given website, not just the uh, the meta-file words that you put up there as far as from getting hits? Um yeah, the, the search engines will take everything that's on the page. Everything. Everything that's on the page. You know, all the the source code. Let me see if I can bring it up here. Yeah, here. Here we go. This is what the search engine kind of absorbs from the site. All this text here. And nothing else. They don't care about the graphics, they they can't read the graphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't care how it's designed or anything like that. They'll just start looking at the text bits. Like here, this line here is the, the page title. Here you see some of the metadata I was just talking about, uh, like keywords. Yeah. Here are some keywords that a search engine would see. A description, if you if you provide a description for your page, it would gets it's what gets displayed by a lot of search engines when they match. You don't have a description, a lot of times the search engines will try and synthesize something about the page based on the keywords. <laughs> you're looking for. Because because you don't know the words that people are looking for and how that's going to be presented. It's always best to have your own description of the page. Yeah. Search engines use and, and I mean this is this is you know, their trade secrets really, you know, it's what makes Google different from Yahoo and from the other ones. They all have their algorithms for ranking the pages to try and give you the one you're looking for. If you have an article about, uh, you know, clams in the Indian River, mm-hmm. your title should be clams in <laughs> the Indian River, and probably one of the first, first headings in your page should be clams in the Indian River, and you know, n- not something as like, uh, you know, swimming down Brevard's waterways. Right. Different search engines use keywords to different degree. Uh, Google claims that they don't use the keywords at all. That they're, they're using other criteria to rank their pages. Because it used to be that was the only way. To yeah, it used to. They used to have a lot more importance, but it, it's it something it that years. got abused a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, to the point where people would repeat keywords. Thing, I mean, that's such a trivial thing to catch. I'm not sure why anyone thought that the search would be cool, But people would, for example, put their competitors as keywords for their page. So, if you were looking for Ford, and GM had Ford it as its keyword, you know, so there was a lot of abuse when it came to the keywords, again, because it wasn't, because it's metadata, it's something that the, the user doesn't see, but the search engine does. And I mean, one thing to, to remember is that <clears throat> if you have, um, I mean, when we talk about Google and Yahoo and, and these public search engines, it's kind of a free-for-all. Um, You know, anything goes when it comes to getting you higher on the ranks, but a lot of people neglect the fact that pages a lot of times are searched by, you know, internal search engines. When you have, you know, a company with all its documents and you want to search the company website, they might be running their own uh, search engine on that and then keywords do become very important. You know, it becomes a way that you can find your corporate information quickly and precisely. I mean, I, I think when it comes down to it, search engines do not trust people to write their pages correctly. Uh, I mean, partly maybe it's because they don't think everyone is competent enough to do it. But I think for the most part is they don't, you know, they don't have any faith that people will just describe their page and be done with it. You know, that people will do anything to get a leg up, you know, to be in that first First page of listings that comes up when you type in those particular keywords. There's an entire industry built on uh, search engine placement. Fine. So there's there's consultants who will charge you thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get your page on that first search page. And you know they're uh, they wizards. They they have kind of figured out how Google's secret algorithms work. And you know they know the tricks to making it happen. Of course, you can pay for a Google ad. You can pay for a Google ad, but it's it's a, it's become a really complicated ecosystem. And just in, in the last three or four years, uh, you know the the field is called search engine optimization, and it's all about making you know placing your your hits higher. Like um, Google, for example, places a lot of value on incoming links. If you have a page and someone has linked to your page, those keywords that are used to link to your page have a really high value. So in other words, if, uh, if we have this article here on Henry Rollins and someone else links to it and says something like, hey, check out this great Henry Rollins article, that link to this article is probably one of the, the best ways to boost it up. And the more incoming links like that that you have, the more uh, the higher up the rankings you go. You know, and again, th- this all comes down to how can the search engines extract m- you know meaning from all these pages when people are out there trying to subvert the whole process. That's what I mean is they they don't really trust you to put the keywords anymore. I mean they'll they'll count them, but they might not rank as much as the actual text that gets seen and in Google's case it definitely doesn't rank as much as the incoming links to your pages. Okay, Page headers, you should use those to denote important topics and uh, importance and details should be proportional to your header level. Uh, Your top level headers should be you know, as close to your, the keywords for the page as you can make it, and then as you go down you can add more detail. Another uh, <laughs> technological factor to consider is hyperlinking. As I just said, linking to your page can affect your listing on a search engine, but it's always good to cite your references. You know, if, if you did your research online and you found some information about something online, mm-hmm. might as well put a link to it at the end. People can have further reading, it reinforces the credibility of what you're writing, if people can actually see the references. I mean, I I don't think anyone here trusts what the internet says 100%, (laughs) (laughs) but if you can at least see it, you can make your own decisions on it. When someone views a page, one of our pages, there's all sorts of information we can get about them. We can find out what kind of computer they're using, what browser, what screen resolution, you can even find out geographic information you can tell whether they came from the united states or south africa right, log in you know, you know. right yeah. yeah if if if, if you have some sort of um verified registration system then you can start collecting demographics but there's no way to, to know how old or you know what gender did you ever try subscription online no. not online no. no it's it's too easy to go somewhere else i mean i don't you know un- unless it's it's very valuable information
1: you because know some
0: prizes or something yeah,
1: yeah something
0: like the Wall Street Journal or financial newsletters or something like that you know where you have valuable unique information that might have enough value for someone to subscribe people like the anonymity yeah. of being online and they don't want get paid away. they don't get paid no I mean really you know from a financial standpoint, this is a hobby of mine. From advertising, from selling banner ads, it's not uh, very many. Mm? I don't see you have like what one. <laughs> I mean, that's not very much. Yeah, for no, 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 lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it just it just doesn't take much. I mean, the our our monthly budget online is literally a hundred times less than what our print budget was. Mm-hmm. We'd spend a hundred times more money. Uh, getting a magazine out. And people were still, you know, for the most part, none of our writers were being paid. We, we might have had a couple of editorial and uh, production positions that gave people some extra beer money. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as a profitable enterprise, it's it's never really been there. I mean, one of the advantages of, of doing this stuff online, um, I guess, is that your costs are, for the most part, fixed, your production costs. It would cost me the same to have uh, 50 page hits, as it does, have half a million. You know, it's not like all of a sudden, oh my, you know, our our readership has gone on 10,000 fold and now we must spend ten thousand times as much getting the word out there, which is what would happen if you had a printed edition. Mm-hmm. So, cite your references, <coughs> check your facts, because other people will be checking them too, <laughs> and it's really embarrassing when they catch you. It's a good idea to always provide a link out. In other words, you know, a link to more information about this person, uh, some place where you can buy something if you're talking about a consumable. I mean, in our case, we usually have a link to the artist's website at the end. So, yeah, so here's a, but it's still worth repeating. There's research that came out, I mean, back back when I gave this presentation the first time, it was very recent research, but now it's about six months old. Research indicates people judge web pages within 50 milliseconds huh. before they've even read a word. They've already looked at the page and decided, you know, ma- made some sort of judgment on it. Research, you know? i have the link here. It <laughs> <laughs> does sound really suspect you know? <laughs> they sit there with a millisecond stopwatch. <laughs> <five laughs> you know, you tell <laughs> me <laughs> when you, you made you know. it. Uh, I, I think I think they were they were uh, tracking and I I think. Think. And electrodes and uh, maybe some yeah, electrodes yeah. or something. The book lays said all sorts of evidence of that. Fifty milliseconds <laughs> is such an incredible. Yeah, I would give them at least a hundred milliseconds. I'd give them a silly millisecond longer. One hundred one. You can you can measure a lot of just by by. Pupil dilation, right. you know, by the way, people's pupils dilate or contract. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty clear indicator of, of someone's attitude towards a page. And they found that when people like the page, their their pupils would dilate within 50 milliseconds of just being presented with it. A peer student. No, you know, for for internal for material that's more targeted. You know, I mean, mo- most of what I've been talking about has been just casual. You know, oh, I'm interested in elephants today. Let's go. S- let's go find out about elephants. <laughs> um, but no, when when you're when you're talking about material that's, you know, part of a process or or, you know, has has a definite place in what you're doing. You know, this is something you reference for your work, or this is part of the coursework for your class. Um, I mean, a lot of this stuff may not apply as strongly, but it's always still it's still good advice, you know, it's still it's still worth it to give people a positive experience and you know, not not drag them through <laughs> I saw that your site has a lot of pictures on it. Like every article had a picture. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the design principles to keep the readers of attraction? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't think of anyone who likes who sees a, a page of, <laughs> full of text and just says, oh, man, I really want to read that. <laughs> um, just having a single image is enough to totally turn the tide yeah. with people, you know. I mean, if, if, if the page opened up and it looked like that, it's not very enticing, you know, if it's just text top to bottom. So your visual design should be clear, easy to read. Don't use Tiny Times Roman type for your main art, your main text. What do you consider the smallest okay. type uh, that you practical? Type size and, and just typography in general is one of those things that is just completely unpredictable online. Right. Yeah. You know, if you look at this page on, you know, on a Mac, yeah. it'll look similar, but it's it won't be the same. Yeah. That's a yeah. serif font. Yeah, I mean, really what it comes down to is you have to you just have to change your expectations you know you have to design things to work within a range and you know not have this mentality from the print days of you know this is how I wanted to look and this is how it's going to look when we were designing this we tested it across all different browsers and we just made sure that you know everything was kind of within the parameters that we wanted. Um, I mean, we couldn't <coughs> control the exact size of the type, but we knew we wanted something about this size and about this kind of spacing. Historically speaking, uh, you use serif fonts for large passages of text, because the theory is that the serifs help your eye identify right. the letters. So the there have been a lot of improvements to type online. Um, you know, first of all, you know, the, the you s- you're seeing more and more of these flat screens, which have a much better resolution. Uh, you're starting to see anti-aliased text coming, coming out. I don't know if, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, like, in, instead of drawing your letters out of black boxes on a white background, you start using shades of gray on the edges to provide the illusion of having a smooth curve instead of like, you know, that blocky stair step effect. That was one of the uh, criteria we used to to tune our type. Is we had, you know, we knew our column was going to be 400 pixels wide, and we wanted I forget the exact number of characters, but you know, a range of characters to fill that space. I guess we'll just kind of reiterate the conclusions. Uh, online media is different from print, kind of in the same way that television is different from theater. You know, you have a lot of the any technological limitations they might have. You should take advantage of what online media brings to the table, things like semantic markup, things like metadata, uh, things like links, I mean links are so simple but mm-hmm. I still think they're underused for the most part. There are some sites out there that are just link farms, <laughs> yeah, <I don't> <laughs> yeah they just serve to generate links to other interesting stuff you might found that find out there mm-hmm. and I, I wouldn't kind of I mean, for, for what I'm talking about here is more of a, you know when, when you have an article or when you have a, a piece of knowledge that you're trying to present, uh, just to bring in those references from the outside and link them right there mm-hmm. um, for people to to reference instead of just saying your piece and ending it, and you know that's it. You know, if you want to do something else about it, you kind of have to go back out to Google and find more information about it. But yeah, I, I think it's better to have no link than, than just a link you're putting there because it's vaguely related. But uh, in most cases, especially these days when people are writing, you know, from the web, you sit down to write an article online and you bring up Google and research the world records and you know all these all this printed reference material. You know, you, you've already you've already collected your research. You might as well attach it to what to the end result unless you. Taking from the competitor's website, <laughs> and it's not really good. Um, and I, I guess that's it, so.